0: Well, uh, if today maybe is the first time you've been with us or you're, you're uh, just coming back, uh, we are nearing the end of a series where we've been marching through the opening chapters of the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn there with me to Acts chapter 8. You're going to want to have your Bible open if you've got it with you because we're going to cover a lot of ground. While you're doing that, let me say to those of you who are joining us uh, on the web, it's good to have you be a part of worship today, either live now or maybe you're checking this out archives during the week, but I'm glad to have you be a part of worship today. We are, within the church, we are followers of Jesus above everything else. We haven't signed on to just a club or a tradition. What we've committed to is to actively seek to live a life of following Jesus through every moment of every day. And when you think about the life of the Lord Jesus, and some of the things that we read about in the Gospels that wind up surprising us, it really challenges us in a bunch of different ways, but one of them is in terms of how we connect to the church. Because when you read the Gospels, and maybe some of us need to do that in a fresh way, if you haven't been in the Word a lot lately, I would encourage that the Gospels are always a great place to start. One of the things that is going to leap off the page to you, if you'll just read straight through the Gospels, is the fact that Jesus, who is the embodiment for us of, of who God is and how we're to live, Jesus was always at odds with the religious crowd of his day, which is a really odd thing when you think about it, because Jesus is a religious guy, isn't he? I mean, he he certainly was a religious leader, and yet every day of his ministry, he was just clashing constantly with the religious system and the religious leaders of his day. And I would point this out. It wasn't just because he happened to arrive at the point in history that he did. If Jesus arrived in the 21st century, if he arrived in January of 2015, I am convinced that he would be equally at odds with religious leadership in the world today. I mean, it wasn't just occasionally. Think about at the very outset of Jesus' ministry. You know, Luke 4 is one of those passages we reference often. We look at it as one of the three or four most defining passages in all of the Bible for us. You know, it's that that Messianic declaration where at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has gone to church. He's gone to synagogue. And in the synagogue, he takes the Isaiah scroll, he, he opens to Isaiah 61, and he makes that declaration that, we, that the Jews knew that the Messiah would make. That the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. And he goes ahead and names off these other things that He is the Messiah would do. And then he says the most shocking thing at the end of that, today in your hearing these words are fulfilled. In other words, I'm the man. I am the one that everyone has been waiting for for centuries and the people were so floored the religious leadership were so angry about that you may not remember this part of luke 4 but they grabbed jesus they're in nazareth in the synagogue and they they rent nazareth by the way is a mountain village it's it's way on up there and there are all kinds of cliffs around there and they grab jesus and they run to one of the cliffs and here at the beginning of his ministry they're going to throw him off the cliff and Luke doesn't explain the how or why. I've got a feeling it's one of those moments where God just flicks the God muscle and just went, free freeze frame. All right, Jesus, come on out. I mean, he doesn't explain it other than they're about to throw him off the cliff and then all of a sudden they can't and Jesus just walks through the crowd and leaves. I think it's one of those moments where God just said, this is the central thing happening in human history and nobody's going to screw that up. Stop. Stop. And Jesus walks through and escapes. That kind of thing happens multiple times, always at the hands of the religious leadership. There was hardly a day of Jesus' life that went by that He would be anywhere near a city that the religious leaders were not attacking Him, trying to trick Him. And I mean, think about how the story concludes. They plan His murder and they execute that. They have Him beaten, tortured, killed. I mean, nobody has ever been more at odds with religious leadership and authority than Jesus was in spite of the fact that He was a religious leader, which begs some really tough questions for us as to what would that mean for today? Where would Jesus fit into the religious system and into church today when He was so constantly at odds with the system in His day? It would probably be very upsetting to see Jesus arrive in the 21st century church. Well... In that whole line of, of Jesus not just coming to sort of make some little changes in the religious system of the day. He came to radically alter that to get it back on track. We shouldn't be surprised then when we read in the book of Acts, which is the story of Jesus the Spirit of Jesus coming, the Holy Spirit coming to extend the ministry of Jesus, this ministry that continues forward into our time, that in the book of Acts, what we're going to see is just this fierce clash between what the Spirit of God is doing and how the religious system reacts to that. And you'll never see it more violent, more ugly, more in sharp contrast to one another than what we'll read about today as we go to Acts chapter 6. And we're not going to have time to read all of this passage, but I want us to get some good chunks on the front end and back end. If you weren't here last Sunday, I would just remind you that in Acts 6, we get the first uh, example of a conflict within the early church. And we're introduced to seven men who, uh, they're not the apostles, these are seven new leaders that are uh, set apart to try and resolve the conflict and serve needs within the church. And the first one that we're introduced to in Acts 6-5 is a man by the name of Stephen, and it says there in, in verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Luke so admires Philip, I mean uh, uh, Stephen that he can hardly ever say his name without saying Stephen, a man full of the Holy Ghost. Over and over he's going to tell us that. So we've got this conflict resolved, and now we move on down into verse 8 where we're going to read Stephen's story. It's going to be a short-lived story, and yet it's a story that's going to be told forever. Beginning in verse 8 we read, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, he did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Interesting to note, Stephen is not one of the apostles, and yet he is doing the same miracles. God's using him in the same kind of way that He used the apostles. The implication for us is significant. That that anointing, that kind of power that Jesus possessed, that the apostles possessed, it was not just for them. It is for any who would follow Christ and operate in the filling of the Holy Spirit. So, Stephen is is looking a lot like Jesus and the apostles in terms of the power that's on him. Verse 9, opposition arose. Those two words are underlined in my Bible. Take note of them. Because any time you operate for any length of time in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you really follow his leadership, there will be opposition. And the opposition that arose, you're going to see is from the religious crowd. Know this. The biggest opposition that you'll ever face in your life to what God is doing in you is not going to come from the world. It's going to come from people who are religious, who see themselves as deeply spiritual. How many of you know that's a fact? It will come from religious people. It'll come from church people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. These were Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus had promised. He said, hey guys, don't worry about what's going to happen on the days when you're put on trial and you're called to account and you're, you're thinking, what am I going to say? He said, you don't even worry about that because the spirit of God in you, he's going to give you the words to say. And now we're seeing this manifest as Stephen is being questioned by bright men, by these men who are well-schooled in the Scriptures, and they can't stand up to the wisdom that he has, not because he's so super smart, but because the Spirit of Christ lives in him. And so then they secretly persuaded some men to say, well, we've heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They're doing the same thing they tried to do with Jesus, bringing in false witnesses to make up a story so that they can either lock him up or beat him up or or worse. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish high court. This is their equivalent of their supreme court, except it's a lot bigger than our supreme court. And it's made up of all of these religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all of the former high priests, the sitting high priest, All of these make up that high council. These are the people who conspired to have Jesus murdered. These are the ones who pulled off that plan. So these are the men to most fear if you are a follower of Jesus. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, talking about the temple. He never stops talking about this holy place and against the law, talking about the law of Moses. For we have heard Him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, they're not talking just about the Ten Commandments or about the written laws in the Old Testament. Hundreds of those there are. But they're also talking about all of the customs that went with that. Hundreds and hundreds of extra rules and regulations to live by. And they're furious. They're saying, this guy says that Jesus is going to tear our precious temple down and He's going to change our customs. You can't speak a bigger blasphemy than that in that Jewish culture. And then this really odd verse that he tacks on. All of those who were sitting in the Sanhedrin, they looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we're not completely sure what Luke means by that. We don't know if, if it just in that moment, if there was just such an anointing, such a filling of the Holy Spirit that he was radiant, if that's what he meant by looking like the face of an angel, may have been. Maybe that was the case. It wouldn't be the first time in Scripture that the glory of God was manifest in a human life. Not quite sure what he meant by the face of an angel. I'm pretty sure it wasn't referring to any of these silly pictures that you'll see in, in art where angels were these fat little cherubs that look like, ah, You know, that's, I don't think that's what he meant by the face of an angel. It's probably easier to understand what he meant that he didn't look like in the face of of this angry group who have done such terrible things already to the apostles and who had Jesus murdered, that what an angel wouldn't have looked like in that moment is afraid, timid, sheepish, apologetic. If anything, an angel in that moment would have had peace and confidence and would have been moving with authority. We know Stephen had the face of an angel. He wasn't. Shrinking back in fear in that moment. And so chapter 7, which is a lengthy chapter, we won't read a lot of it, but it begins by saying, So then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? And to this Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he came to Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. And then he just goes on from that point. He begins with Abraham because Abraham in all of the Jews is the beginning of of their faith. He is the father of the faith. He is the father of the Jewish nation In, in their minds. He is the first ever Jew in the world though he has a heritage and a line before him, it's like they draw a line and say, but God selected Abram, who became Abraham. And so we, we trace our lineage back to him. So he's like, all right, let me tell you the story of what God has been doing, starting with our father Abraham. And over the course of 52 verses... He tells the story of what God has been doing, the part that they're not going to argue. This is the part that's revealed in the Old Testament. It's there in black and white. And he's saying, we all know this. And he's trying to show them the hand of God, the work of God's Spirit throughout history from Abraham moving forward to their day. And so for 52 verses, that's what he does. And we're going to just jump down to the end of what Stephen says in verse 51. Now, Again, you would think in the face of these men who are ready to to imprison, to beat, to do whatever they have to, to stop this movement, you would think he'd be a little timid. You, You would think if he were called on the carpet, he might back down. I mean, picture in our world today, if you're a public school teacher or you work in a in a job in public service where you are not allowed to take a stand for Christ and now they've heard that you did and you're being called in before your supervisor before the principal before the school board before the whoever and they are they are wearing you out over this thing you could lose your job you could go home Wouldn't you be a little sheepish, a little frightened, a little timid, a little careful, a little apologetic? I want you to hear how timid and apologetic Stephen is in this moment, though the stakes are much higher than losing a teaching position or just a job. Verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That's a weird phrase for us. Just know that when he's saying uncircumcised, that's a Jewish way of saying pagan. The pagans were uncircumcised. And so it's his way of saying, You stiff-necked, stubborn bunch with pagan hearts and pagan ears. He's being real gentle and nice, isn't he? They call him on a good day. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, meaning Jesus. Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered Him. You! You have betrayed Him. You've murdered Him. You who received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Wow! I mean, does that not just about take your breath away? This dude is beyond bold. Well, when they heard this, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, once again, full of the Holy Spirit, something extraordinary happens he looked up to heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God underline that word standing in your Bible God gives him in this moment of time in this critical moment an opportunity to literally see into the heavenly realm and to see the very center of heaven to see God himself and to see Jesus at his right hand but he sees something that we don't notice in other places in Scripture. We always read about Jesus having finished His work of redemption. He's returned to heaven, and where is He? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. But that is not what Stephen sees. He sees Jesus standing. And he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices they all rushed him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is going to emerge starting in the next chapter, in chapter 9, as the central figure in the rest of the story of the book of Acts. His name is going to be changed to Paul. But at the moment he is joining in they drag him outside the city and they stone him. Now, when I grew up in church and I would, would hear in Sunday school about somebody being stoned, the picture that always came to mind for me was kind of like a modern firing squad. You know, tie him to a post or put him against a wall and now line up about a dozen of the good guys. And, but instead of rifles, give them all a bunch of rocks bunch of Ernest T. basses up there with a sack of rocks, you know, ready to fling them, you know. Going to wear this guy out with little stones until we kill him. I always thought that would be hard to do, you know, to kill somebody with little rocks. It would be. That's not what they did. They drug him out to a place. That, typically what they wanted to do when they stoned someone, ideally they wanted to have a cliff or a deep pit. They wanted the drop-off to be substantial enough that when the person hit the rocks below that they would be maimed by that, that they'd break a lot of bones and be severely injured. They couldn't run away. And then in that position where they're literally standing over them, they would pick up boulders, not little rocks, but think in terms of like bowling balls and bigger, as large as you could pick up. And now using just gravity, they would take those things and just drop them on them so that you're just... You're crushing bones. You're, you're ripping open vital organs as they're just being crushed by these stones. And ultimately, a skull is going to be crushed and a life's going to be taken. That's what it was like to stone someone. And the, the term there is the witnesses stoned him. That was a legal term in Stephen's day. Those were the ones who actually, they they were the equivalent of the firing squad. The whole mob didn't get to stone him. It it made it look like they were abiding by the law as if they, you know, they, they did a little, apparently, a quickie little trial They did not have the authority to kill anyone. Only Rome could do that. They're just so mad. They're taking the law into their own hands. And they're basically saying, okay, you twelve right here, you guys are going to be the witnesses. Uh, Are you in agreement he should die? Yes. All right. Then you guys are the ones who get to pick up rocks. Y'all get to stand at the edge. And when we've thrown him down, you get to crush him with those rocks. So it sort of halfway looks like we did the legal thing. There there is no trial. but, But they're stoning him to death. Verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell to his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is the biblical, ancient biblical way of saying he died. We would say he passed away. They say he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving his approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. The New American Standard says he began to ravage the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed, Christ there. This is a defining moment in the history of the church. Up until this day, the entire Christian movement that has now spanned the globe, that now involves way over 2 billion people today, up until this moment in time, it was simply a Jewish movement that existed in one city, Jerusalem. It's estimated that the church had grown to about 25,000 people, And pretty much every single one of them were still in Jerusalem. It was the hub of what God was doing. It was all centered right there, and the world was not going to be reached as long as it stayed in Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, you you had these, these two things in conflict. By the way, Jerusalem is still an amazing hub. Three of the world's great religions are all trying to win Jerusalem. Christianity, Islam, and Judaism are all... Gathered in Jerusalem. And you talk about a tense, peculiar place. You visit Jerusalem. It is, it is a wonderful and strange place. Well, in that day, all of Christianity was in Jerusalem. But also, all of the religious leadership of the day that was Jewish was in Jerusalem. All bottled up. And on this day, they finally collide. The Jewish leadership had been trying to figure out how to stamp out this movement, and they couldn't. It was just—it was like a wildfire with wind blowing on it. And that wind was the breath of God. It was the Spirit of God. And on this day, all of that, that wind and fire is going to leave the city, and it's going to begin to span the world. And we see in this story not only the death of the first Christian martyr in all of history, the first person who ever was martyred for following Jesus was Stephen, But we're not reading primarily about the death of Stephen. What we're reading about is the explosion of the church onto the world scene. And it is a movement, it is a wildfire that has spread, that is continuing to grow in intensity. It's actually grown in intensity a great deal in our lifetimes. In part, because of modern transportation and modern communication and the Internet, which are enabling us to just truly cover all parts of the earth. And with that, the gospel... And the work of God's Spirit is spreading wildly. There are seven things in the story that I'm going to just quickly point out to you to just point back to some key things that I want you to note about this before we, we pause and consider the takeaway for the day. The first one is just an obvious setting, the stage that Stephen was filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. And that's why he becomes the central character in focus in these chapters. As we said in chapter 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people, but opposition arose because of that. This is a clash between what God's Spirit is doing and, and what mankind has held on to as their own traditions. And it, it centers around Stephen because Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. Just a reminder you know, we talked about this in December. There is a big difference between knowing Christ. And receiving the deposit of the Holy Spirit, which ensures that you will be saved and that you'll go to heaven and that you belong to Christ. There's a big difference between that and being a man or woman who is filled with the Spirit of God. Now that's an opportunity that's available to every single one of us. But it is up to us whether we're going to sort of walk around as minimal Christians, fitting in and getting by. Or if we're going to be those men and women who change the world because the life of God fills us. His words on our lips, His power in our lives, the same power that Jesus possessed. That's what Stephen had. The second thing I would point out is that traditional religion, and that's what Stephen is standing in contrast to in his day, traditional religion as we see in this story and as we see today, it honors the place of worship as much as it honors God. You ever notice that? We still do that today. When they get all bowed up and angry in chapter 3, you notice what they have these false witnesses say. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. And we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. I mean, they are ticked off because they're afraid that Jesus or Stephen or these followers of the way are going to mess with the temple. You can't mess with the holy building. Can I just tell you, we have not lost that fervor or intensity in the traditional Christian church in America today that they had 2,000 years ago. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go join any of the traditional churches, the big, beautiful buildings with the big steeple on top and the stained glass and the, the great facility. Go join those fellowships and try and do anything to the building. Can I just tell you, you better put on a helmet and a flak jacket because you're going to need it. I've had the privilege of serving in a couple of, of very large Nice churches, very traditional churches that had nice, big, expensive facilities. Those were blessings. It was a blessing to serve in those places. But I learned the lesson the hard way. You better not mess with that building. You better not mess with what you have in that building and what you do in that building. The last church that I served before I, I planted a church, we made the mistake of thinking that we could alter some of what was in that building in an attempt to to reach unchurched people, we thought, you know, let's make the Sunday experience more user-friendly for people who are who are not near God, who are not near church, who just who we could maybe invite and persuade to come to church. And we just looked around at, at how we dressed and just the look and feel of the building, and we realized, you know, you walk in this place and it looks like, for starters, we've got this big honking piece of furniture on stage that it looks like the pastor, you know, could hide behind. It's so big, you know. It, great big pulpit that's sort of the centerpiece and then on either side of that flanking it are what looked like thrones. I mean, you would expect somebody to wear a crown and come sit down in those big chairs. It's like, where do you where do you buy a chair like that for heaven's sake, you know? We saved those from the Middle Ages and we just said, what if we just sort of begin to change how we dress and, and act and what if we just change even the feel of the room and Eliminate some furniture and let's just try and warm the place up. What if we made church an inviting and friendly, warm kind of place? Was, yeah, heresy. it was a stupid idea, I guess. We thought it made good sense. And so we came in and tried to do that as a staff. Holy moly. You would have thought that we replaced Jesus with somebody else as, as who we pray to. I immediately called to account. Who gave you people permission to be rearranging the furniture in this building? Oh, and then we made a really bad mistake of beginning to pray about and think about. As we had outgrown the facility, we actually considered and discussed relocating to another place where we would have more room to reach more people. Oh, we had lost our minds at that point. I mean, people were ready to take up arms and lynch some folks over this thing. You're talking about abandoning this building, selling this building to another church to meet. This is our building. It's insane how militant people get over the building and the furniture. It has not changed. Traditional religion honors a building almost as much as it honors God. Church never fall in the trap of thinking that the building is the church or that the building is what's sacred. The thing that makes a building special is the presence of Christ in the the manifestation of that presence through His people. It is Christ living in that place because His people inhabit that place. It's not the building that's anything special. But traditional religion will say, the building's got to be something unique and special to be revered. Thirdly, traditional religion clings to the past and what is familiar Verse 14, they said, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Wars have been fought. Church wars over the last two or three decades in America because after a pretty long season of stability in the American church where nobody was really messing with the customs, in the the latter part of the last century, particularly in the late 80s and 90s and early 2000s, The Spirit of God moving in the church began to lead people to respond in ways that shook up the customs. It shook up the traditions of how the church did church. Now, every church has customs, if you've been around for any length of time. We have customs around here. I mean, you may not think of them as customs, but they are. They're not necessarily sacred, but they're customs. I mean, one of our customs is we meet on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. We could meet any other time of the week. It's just our custom that we meet on Sunday morning at 10. That's not a biblical issue. We're not told to meet at that time on Sunday. We sing and worship. You know, we pray and sing for 30 minutes, and then I preach forever after that. You know, that's our custom. <laughs> Y'all know that's true. We, but, but there's a custom. To, well, we have all kinds of customs. We, our custom is we meet in homes. We don't have Sunday school. But the customs that were true in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s in church in America, particularly if you grew up in evangelical churches. I grew up in the Baptist church. You know, there were some customs that were set. You do Sunday school before you do worship, right? And that meets not at 10, not at 9. It meets at 9.45. And then we gather for a high holy hour at 11, over at 12, not 12.05. Because the pastor's name is Mud, if you go past that. I mean, those were just the traditions. Sunday school, we use a choir, we sing out of a hymnal. We could just name all these other traditions. You put on your Sunday best, you wear a coat and tie, ladies you wear a dress. These were the customs of the day. And in the nineties, some of those customs began to change. People began to change how they dressed. They you know, more and more churches started using projectors and words on the screen instead of a hymnal, began to use modern praise and worship songs. You couldn't begin to imagine how many thousands of pastors and worship leaders have lost their jobs or been all but crucified because they started using modern songs in worship or because they wanted to use a projector or add other instruments. And I would just point out that whole war that has been fought over things like which translation of the Bible you're going to use and how contemporary the songs are and whether you're going to have a pipe organ or drums. All of that stuff It is the same war between those who would defend what's familiar and those who want to embrace whatever the Spirit of God is saying for today. And, you know, for us today, we've got to guard against the same thing. Our customs don't look like the customs of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they certainly don't look like the customs of the first century, but they're still our customs. That doesn't make them good or bad. They just are what they are. Our commitment needs to not be to our customs. They need to be to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Customs need to change with with time. And the danger is, it is human nature for every one of us to want to hold on to what is familiar. We run to and cling to whatever is familiar. When Stephen began to address the, the leadership, he began by saying, Remember our father Abraham. Remember what God did in his life. Now, Stephen, what he's trying to do is link what is happening in his day at that very moment in time with what God has always been doing that's undeniable. And he says, you think back to the very beginning how God worked in Abraham's life and let's remember what God did. He didn't leave anything the way it was. He said to Abraham, leave your home in Mesopotamia and you go to... well, go to some place you've never seen before. So I can't very easily tell you where it is if I told you it wouldn't mean anything. You just go to a place that I'll show you. And he and his family, they moved all the way to Haran in Turkey. And they lived there for a while. And when it started feeling stable, then his dad died. And God said, you're not done yet. You haven't arrived yet. Get up and move. You still haven't gotten to that place. And then they eventually landed at a place that God would have for them. The point being, always God is on the move. Always the Spirit of God is leading us toward change. The goal is not to get into the sweet spot where we go, alright, this is it, this is what we're going to do till Jesus comes back. No, the thing that you get to do till Jesus comes back is constantly look and listen and watch for what the Spirit of God is doing and listen for what the Spirit of God is saying and struggle to discern so that you can keep in step with what He's saying and doing because He's alive, He's dynamic, He's always on the move. That's what Stephen was trying to show them. To just cling to tradition and customs is death. The Spirit of God breathes life. It's always on the move. It's always changing. It's interesting that in his explanation of the history and how God was at work there, he talks about the season when the people of God were in the wilderness. They were following God's leadership through Moses. And it's one of the times that they got mad and rebelled. And in verse 39... He said, but our fathers refused to obey him and instead they rejected him and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. That is an interesting line. In their hearts they turned back to Egypt. These were the people who had lived their lives in Egypt and in Egypt they were all slaves. God had worked miraculously to intervene. He had done the impossible to break them out to set them free. He's going to give them a land to possess and to live in freedom, to worship and serve him. And on the way there, they hit some bumps along the way. They they had some challenges, and what had started out as really exciting and good had gotten to the point that they were grumbling and rethinking this thing, and they came to a critical moment in time where they thought about the challenges of continuing to try and follow what God was saying, but they thought about how life had been in Egypt when they were slaves. And in that moment, they thought, you know what? It feels easier to go back to what we know, even though it was slavery. We at least knew what to expect. And I think we'd rather have what we used to have rather than follow God into what is completely unknown. And so in their hearts, they returned to Egypt. That line so sums up what has happened for many of us at critical times in our lives. Have you ever been there? Have you as a follower of Christ ever been in a place where God has reached down and worked miraculously in your life to shake you loose and break you loose from a place of bondage that you've been living in? Bondage to behavior that you couldn't control, bondage through a relationship that was destructive and you just couldn't break yourself out of it bondage to what you were doing to your body, a bad, bad place and God shakes you loose and breaks you loose, and He's moving you toward freedom, but somehow in getting from there to here, there's an in-between season where things are a little shaky. They're kind of uncertain, and you, you don't know how this is all going to play out. You know that God worked miraculously. You know God's working in your life. But along the way, you start rethinking this, and you get afraid, and you don't know what's ahead, but you at least remember what it used to be like. And even though it was bad... It was familiar and there was some comfort in that. And in that moment, some of us let our hearts return to Egypt. You know what that means? It means that in that moment, you started craving what was familiar over craving God and what would please Him. And in that critical moment for some of us, you know what we've done? We've run back to the bondage. We've run back to that relationship that had crippled us, that was stifling our spiritual lives, that God had finally given us a break from. And when we broke from that person, we finally felt like we could breathe. We finally felt like we we were free from the guilt and shame and all of the junk that went with that relationship. And for just a little season, we felt right with God and we saw ourselves growing spiritually. But when things got a little shaky... It felt easier to run back to that relationship that was stable even though it involved so much spiritual bondage, so much unhealthy, sinful garbage. And we went back there because it was familiar. Or maybe it wasn't a relationship. Maybe it was a controlling habit. Maybe it was that thing that you have to suck on or take or drink. You know, that thing that had held you in bondage and God spoke and he, He... Poured out the grace and power for you to take a break from that and you live free from that for a season. But then something came along that shook you up, and in your heart, you returned to Egypt and you went back to what was familiar, even though you knew how destructive it was. Boy, it's a deadly thing to crave familiarity over what God wants. Well, that brings us to the fourth truth. Traditional religion will always cling to the past and whatever's familiar. But the greatest threat to traditional religion is always the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that's a fact? That's why church wars have been fought in such a big way in recent decades. Because thankfully the Spirit of God is moving. He is working and He is blowing up the traditions that we've held on to that have been choking out His work. Stephen confronts this in verse 51 when he says, How stubborn can you be? How can you be so heartless and disobedient? You're just like our ancestors. They always opposed the Holy Spirit, and so do you. What was the Holy Spirit saying in Stephen's day that they were so resistant to? Well, he was saying a lot of things, but I think we could probably point out two things above everything else that the Spirit of God was saying that the religious system just would not abide by. First of all, the Spirit of God was saying through the church that faith and a real spiritual life was not centered around a list of rules. It was not centered around the temple. It was not centered around animal sacrifice. That real faith, that a life pleasing to God was centered around one thing and that is a living personal relationship with God. Well, we hear that and go, well, yeah, that's not news. That was huge news. That was turning the whole system upside down. Because now you don't please God by going to temple and being good and offering right sacrifices and doing the list. Now to be right with God is through faith in Jesus that you have this daily personal relationship. Oh, they didn't know what to do with that. They hated that. Because now the rules weren't the primary thing in play. And then the second piece that was even more offensive, that God loves everyone and salvation is for everyone who will trust in Jesus. The Jewish leaders were so convinced... This is for us. God loves us. He doesn't love those uncircumcised pagans out there. This is for us. And the Spirit of God was saying, no. God loves everyone. And by the way, God had been making this clear for a long time. When he first spoke to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through you and your descendants. He always loved everyone. He was always after everyone. But it was with the coming of the Holy Spirit that this thing went global and thankfully the good news is going to wind up making it all the way to us pagan Gentiles. Man, they couldn't stand that. Now here's the thought for the day. Here's the question for the day. I want you to wrestle with this all the way to your small group because you're going to have to wrestle with this in small group. What's the Spirit of God saying today? Today? what's he saying today we're not surprised by the, the two primary things that the spirit of god was saying 2000 years ago that faith is about a personal relationship with god that salvation is for everyone who will trust in christ that's like that's old news for us the spirit of god speaking and moving today what's he saying today i'm curious i know you get weirded out when i turn this back on you in big church but uh, what do you think he's saying today let go of the old and grab for the new. It's a good word. Anybody else? What do you think the Spirit of God is saying today? Too many guns in the world. <laughs> Too many guns in the world. <laughs> Anybody else? What do you think the Spirit of God is saying today? He, he, the, Paul said the same thing that he said then. He is certainly still saying that today. That salvation is for everyone who will believe and that God wants a personal relationship with all. He certainly is saying that today. Well, I have some thoughts on what he's saying today, but I kind of want you to have to wrestle with that and go into your group and, and talk about that. I want you to wrestle with that. What is the Spirit of God saying today in the church and what's the Spirit of God saying in your life? I'll just leave that dangling. You'll have fun with that this week. Fifth thing that I'll point out in the story, when Stephen stood for Jesus, Jesus stood for Stephen. And He'll do the same for us. It was not coincidental that Luke recorded the words of Stephen that when heaven was open and he got to see God Himself, the Father and the Son, that he looked at the Son and Jesus is not seated on His throne. That Jesus is standing in that moment. And he says that again, I see heaven open and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Why does that matter? I think it matters because God was making a point. He wanted us to know the same thing that Stephen found out and experienced in that moment. That in the greatest moment of crisis, when the most pressure is on you, if you'll stand for Jesus, Jesus will stand for you. And it wasn't that He just stood to honor Stephen, though I think that's part of it. I think Jesus stood as an outward expression of the fact that right now, Stephen, as you stand for me in your most critical, most difficult moment of your life, I am standing to demonstrate whatever you need, I'm going to bring it. Whatever you've got to have in that moment, I'm going to make sure you get it. I live ever to intercede on your behalf, on behalf of every son and daughter of God before the Father. And to say, Father, give him what he needs. Give her exactly what she needs in this moment. They're feeling terrible loss right now. Father, pour out compassion Pour out your presence right now. They don't know how they're going to make it. They don't know how they're going to get through another day. Father, lay it on them today. Just give them all that they need in the moment of your greatest need. You stand for Jesus, He'll stand for you. Count on it. Man, there's comfort in that. This story, on the surface of it, you would think, oh, it's so tragic. He was such a good guy, and he was. He was such a godly man, such a good man, and he gets murdered. And yet, when you read what Luke records, it doesn't feel like a tragedy, does it? It feels like a victory. It is a victory, as we're going to see. It's a great reminder, no matter what happens to you, that the world might look at you and go, Oh, how sad, how tragic, whatever you have to go through. The death of someone you care about. The end of a career that you thought would be the thing that would make you happy. The end of a marriage that you thought would last forever. The loss of a child. Whatever it is that you think you couldn't possibly survive, even if you have to walk through that, if you stand for Jesus in that season, I promise you Jesus will stand for you. He will give you exactly what you need. When you think you go through something you couldn't possibly endure, I want to promise you Jesus can pour out on you more than you thought you could ever handle And He'll give you exactly what you need. And we don't see Stephen going, Oh, why is this happening to me? This is so terrible. No. Stephen's doing the impossible. He's being crushed. He's being smashed to bits. And he's saying the unimaginable. Father, would You please not hold us against them? Would You forgive their sin? Don't send them to hell for what they're doing today. I mean, the whole point of that... God, keep working on them. I want them to be saved. And he falls asleep. It's not a picture of, oh, this is so terrible. It's just a reminder of, you ever watched people in life go through things that you just look at what's happening and you go, oh my goodness, I hope that never happens to me. I can't imagine surviving that. And then you watch a follower of Christ go through it and think, they have this incredible peace. They're walking through this with so much grace. They're not afraid. They're not pulling their hair out. I don't know how a person could survive that. And yet they have joy and victory in the middle of that. It's because when you stand for Jesus, Jesus stands for you and it gives you all that you need. The sixth thing Stephen's murder opened the floodgate of attacks and suffering for the church. It did. And that sounds, once again, like a great tragedy. We're going to find out it was the opposite. It says on that day a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem and Saul began ravaging the church. The term there in the Greek is the term that's used for what a wild animal will do to a dead carcass when it just rips it apart. Ravaging the church. Entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now I don't know about you. I suspect you're like me. I read a passage like that and think, Ooh, glad I wasn't there on that day. I didn't live in the first century when things were hard for Christians. You know, those Romans and those Jewish leaders, they were tough on Christians. Those first three centuries, they were really bad. Aren't you glad we live in the 21st century when that kind of stuff is over? Don't you kid yourself. More Christians were martyred for their faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. This conflict is not diminishing, it's escalating. It's costly to live for Jesus. You know, we talked several months ago about what did Jesus promise to those who would follow Him? Did He promise the blessed life, the better life, heaven and all those things? The main thing that Jesus promised was a fearless faith. That He would train us up to be men and women who in the face of anything that the world brings on could have confidence And a faith that carries us through whatever happens. And I just want to leave you this to chew on. When we're raising our kids and our grandkids, what in the world are we trying to pass on to them? What are we trying to do for or to them? Because think about how we treat the generation or two behind us. We try and make sure that they're comfortable and safe And never put in any situation that's uncomfortable for them? I mean, like I'll give you I used to be a student pastor, so I'll give you a student pastor kind of example. We don't want our kids to have to go to a youth group where they don't have lots of friends and feel really comfortable. We you know, we want to make sure we change churches and go to the church where our kids are comfortable. We don't ever want our kids to be stretched or to be made to feel uncomfortable. What do you think you joined? Do we think we're joining up with kitty land, playland? We're going to take them to a big bouncy room with full of balls and toys? We have joined the army of God that is in head to head, full out combat with the kingdom of darkness. The lives and souls of human beings that populate this planet hang in the balance. There is a price to be paid. Hell is on the loose. Evil is on the loose. And if we're going to win the day, we're going to have to train up a generation that we teach them. It's going to cost you something. You're going to have to make sacrifices. You're going to have to go into tough situations where you stand for Christ, where you pay a price. You may lose your job. You'll be called out. You'll be singled out. You'll be treated as different. And we're not going to teach them to live like that by coddling them all the time and coddling ourselves. We're going to have to say of this generation, it's going to be costly for you to follow Jesus. It's probably going to cost you more than it costs me. But if we don't live out our lives in a way where there is a price to be paid, there's something wrong with us. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all, not some, all who would live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We live at a time in America where there are so many positions, so many work situations where it's not just teachers. It's lots of people like teachers who work in an environment where if you're going to take a stand for Christ, you know, there's a policy. You can't talk about Jesus. You can't talk about faith or religion, you know, because it violates other people's rights. Hogwash, hogwash, hogwash. The apostles were told the same thing. And they said, judge for yourselves, which is more important, to obey God or to obey men. We will not stop. We will not cease to declare Jesus and what He's done. Here's the thing that really troubles me today. So many people who live and work in those environments, and in my life I have only personally known one person who lost their job because they stood up and spoke of Christ in the workplace. Now, I'm not saying I've only known one person who took a stand. I've only known of one person who took a stand and actually lost their job over it. The goal is not to lose your job. That is not the mission. But isn't something wrong when we've created a Christian culture that says, now you live out your faith, but keep them zipped because you don't want to lose your job. You don't want to break the rules. That's the world talking. That's the enemy socializing you into believing that the right thing to do is to keep your job and to keep your mouth shut. No! No! There is a price to be paid, and Stephen models for us, if it costs you your life, that's okay, because God can take even a murder and turn it into world change. God can take a murder and start a revolution, and that's what He did with Stephen. And that is the conclusion of the story, that Jesus used Stephen's death and the ensuing persecution to launch a vast mission movement. In fact, it was the greatest mission movement the world has ever known, and hasn't stopped. Instead of the salt all being in the shaker in Jerusalem, suddenly it's scattered in every direction. He says, all the believers except the apostles, God bless the apostles, they didn't run. They stood there. And these guys that had been so afraid, they had run in terror months before, but they didn't run. They stayed in Jerusalem. But you know what? God wasn't just with them. He was with those who fled. They were scattered throughout the provinces of Judea and Samaria. The believers who were scattered went everywhere everywhere preaching the message. And Philip went to the principal city in in Samaria and he preached the Messiah to the people there. And we read on chapters later in chapter 11, they're still referencing back to that day because this was the defining moment where the church went global. Luke says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word. They went international. Everywhere they went, they didn't shut up. They didn't run in fear and say, well, we better keep it to ourselves. They went in every direction and every time they got to talk to somebody, they tried to tell them about Jesus and what He had done. And with that, the kingdom of God took off. And it began what it's still doing today, claiming this planet in the name of Jesus. But it took tragedy It took a murder. It took a bunch of people being snatched out of their homes and thrown in prison. And for them, on the earthly side, there was not a happy outcome. It took tragedy. It took loss. It took great pain in order for God's will to be accomplished. And you know, in that, for me, there is a powerful reminder that oftentimes it is what in the moment feels like the worst possible thing that could happen to you. It may feel like in the moment the worst thing that ever happened in your life that God most often will redeem in such a big way that it results in your greatest, most profound ministry. For some, it's a tragedy that happens. It's a loss that we maybe had nothing to do with. And we feel like we can't survive, we can't get through that, we can't get past that. And if you'll let God in time, He will take that loss and He will not just redeem it so that you can have happiness beyond that. He will actually allow you to use that loss to minister to others. And you'll find out that in your pain and what God did through that, it'll be the most profound ministry you ever had. You want to know what's really amazing about how God does this? Is God will take the worst things that happened in your life, even the ones that you and I caused. Yeah, because of our bad decisions, our selfishness, or our sin that lead to the worst things that have ever happened to us, God will redeem even that and turn that into your most profound ministry. Jesus never wastes a hurt. And it may be that right now you are living with immense pain. It may be pain that you brought on yourself. It may be pain because of what a loved one or a spouse did to you. They cheated on you. They abandoned you. They broke your heart. Or maybe you caused the heartbreak. It doesn't matter. Jesus will not waste that pain. He is the master of taking tragedy and making triumph out of that. You let him. You invite him. He will take your deepest pain and he will turn it into your greatest strength and absolutely the most profound ministry that you'll ever do. That's hard to cheer for, isn't it? I'd rather skip the pain and just get the profound ministry. I'd rather just have the triumph, the victory, but it's, there's going to have to be a price paid. There's going to have to be some pain. There's got to be some suffering along the way. Don't you give up. Don't you shrink back. Don't you believe the lie of the enemy, that God's mad at you, that He's quit loving you, that He couldn't use you because you remember the truth. God takes pain. And out of that, He works His greatest miracles, gives His biggest victories, and gives us our greatest ministries. Stephen's death, as tragic as it seems in the history of the church, is not a great tragedy. It is one of our greatest moments. It is a great victory. We began to take the world from that point forward. The kingdom of darkness, I'll promise you this, Lucifer and all of his followers, they don't look back to that day as a day of victory for them. They look back at that day and they shake their heads and go, crud, how we misjudged that. We thought we could stamp this thing out. We thought that that when we finally crossed the line and started killing them, it would end the movement. But it's true, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. You start openly persecuting Christians, and you can't squash the movement. It's why tens of thousands of Chinese living under communism come to faith every single day. It's estimated that 30,000 Chinese men and women, boys and girls, come to faith every day. Communism can't stamp it out. Islam can't stamp it out. Satan himself can't stamp it out. In the face of great suffering, God brings great victory. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the example of Stephen. We thank you for what you accomplished through his life. We thank you for how we're encouraged by his example. And we thank you for the way that you used his death and the persecution that ensued to bring the gospel to the nations and ultimately to us. Oh, how we give thanks for that. I want to invite you to do a couple of things as we conclude in prayer. First of all, I want to invite you to look in the mirror for a moment at your own life and consider this question. Does my life look more like the traditional religious person wanting to hang on to the past and what's familiar and holy places and familiar things? Do I look more like that or do I look more like the spirit-filled follower of Christ who's willing to pay a price to follow Jesus? which one looks more like you? And if the answer is not one that we're very satisfied with, would you just confess that to God and ask Him to do a work in you to make of you a faithful follower of Jesus who lives filled with the Spirit willing to pay the price? And the final thing I'll ask you is this. We see in this story the reality that it's often out of pain, tragedy, or great difficulty that God comes through and does His greatest work. Are you in the midst of working through one of those pains or tragedies? Are you still trying to recover from one of those events, but you felt locked in a bad place because of that? And if so, would you today be willing to place that situation, that struggle, that loss... In the hands of God. And just simply by faith to say, God, I choose to let go. To let go of being mad at You. To let go of needing to hear the answer to why. To just let go. And to trust You with this. And I'm going to ask You to do more than just get me through it. I'm going to ask You to redeem this situation and to redeem me. I'm going to ask You to take this pain and work good out of it. God, please don't waste this hurt in my life. Please don't let this be for naught. Don't, don't let me have to go back to school and relearn this lesson. Father, would you minister to hurting hearts? Would you speak in our pain? And would you work in a way that ultimately is for your glory and our good? We welcome that. We pray it in Jesus' name.